All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to hear. Okay. If I haven't met you, my name is JJ, and uh, I get the pleasure of this next part, which is taking us through God's Word, and i um, so pumped that we get to be together today. I just wanted to make one clarification on, a, on an announcement that, that Caitlin made. Um, she said something about uh, bad weather, and you know the motto, it's Bellingham, so deal with it, and that's not the motto. No, it was unaware to her at the time. I just want to make it clear. We live by some, some words, and those words are, it's never bad weather. You just have bad gear or a bad attitude. That's Bellingham. The weather's never too bad. You just have bad gear or a bad attitude, or both, and then you're really in trouble. Hey, um, we are going to cover a portion of scripture today. Uh, I just want to say a couple things. It's going to be, it's a big portion, and it's on purpose. And um, I want to just kind of say a couple things before I read the scripture and then pray, and then we'll go through it. Um, there's a goal behind our church gatherings here, believe it or not. Uh, there's, there's a reason for everything that we do, and there's a reason, there are reasons behind our Sundays. Um, the way we do everything from asking people to join a greeting team, because to, to when I leave at the, at the end of the service, before you leave, when I give an invitation to get prayer, everything is leading to something. We want people to know that there's a place in our city that they're welcome regardless of where you've been, um, what you're currently going through, and that God, like, cares. He sees and cares, and we want to embody that as a church. So the goal of these gatherings, it's a couple things. We want to gather into God's presence and then kind of into each other's presence. There's something that happens when, when, we, when we're together um, in whatever capacity we can be, but we have the opportunity to gather in this place. Uh, we really want to communicate God's heart. We communicate God's heart through his word. His word is his heartbeat for you and for me. So we teach through God's word and we want to be in it together. So we want to teach you what the Bible says and what God means by it. Um, but most of all, I want you to come to know who God is more in your life. And as we do that, we discover things. We discover things like, who am I becoming? Um, were the things that were said about me as a kid, were those true? Was the way that person treated me when I was younger, was that healthy? Was that helpful? Well, as we get to know God through his word and through the body of Christ, we learn about him. 
his character, who he is. And then in turn, we learn about us. It's not the other way around. We don't start with us and then go to God. We start with God and we end up at us. And that's what we're doing all the time on our Sundays. I have some goals for today specifically. The goal number one, and you guys are going to love this. My goal for today is to make everybody in this room uncomfortable. I'm going to say it up front that there is going to be something that is said or talked about, and its goal is to make you, I don't know about cringe, but to make you uncomfortable. The second goal for today is then in turn to make you think deeply. And then the last goal is to focus on Jesus. Because there's, so with that being said, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. And as you're turning there, uh, let me pray for this morning. God, thank you for today. There, your, your grace really is amazing. I was thinking as we sang that last song, even in the way that we sang it, I'm like, people have been singing this like this for a long time. And we've, we mean it, Lord. Um, your grace sets us free. Your grace is what is true. So, Lord, we open up your word this morning knowing that there are things that we face sometimes in this world maybe we don't want to hear. But it is by your grace that you tell us the truth because you love us. So may we open up your word. May we open up our hearts. And may you impart your love and your truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here's our passage. I'm going to jump around a little bit. And then I'm going to read a big chunk. So feel free to listen. I'm going to do my best. I've been reading this passage probably 20 times just this week. That's why I'm going to do the reading today instead of have someone else do it. And then so you can follow along. Words will be on the screen or you can have your Bible open as well. So we're going to start in uh, chapter, eight, or chapter 18. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 16. This is right after um, Abraham. Abraham had just met with God, remember? And he renames him Abraham and his wife Sarah. Re says the promise of the, what we talked about um, last week. And then it picks it up in verse 16. Those men, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now skip down to verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is, is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now go to verse 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom, or excuse me, chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot 
was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now we're going to focus on Lot, which is the contrast to Abraham, whom we were looking at last week. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed his face to the ground, bowed down with his face to the ground. Verse 2, my lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him. They insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared, prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. I just want to pause to see everybody's faces so far. Verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied. This, fel this fellow, so this is them talking to um, Lot. Get out of our way. You who came here as a foreigner and now you want to play the judge, we'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters and he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand, grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant is, if your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains, this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, there is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. The angel said to him, very well, or the man said to him, very well. I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow it, the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything till you reach it. 
That is why the town is called Zoar. By the, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It was a heck of a day. That was a less than 24-hour period. I don't know if you caught it, but there's a couple of things going on in this narrative. Narrative means story. Story often is what we tell our kids, and it's what sometimes we come to think about what's going on in the Bible like they're just stories. Um, they're narratives. It's a, the type of writing is narrative. It's storytelling. It's a true story. So it's an account. So even though we use the word, we pick up our story or in the story, and we tell our kids stuff like Bible characters. These are people. This is what was happening. This is why we're calling Genesis in the beginning, because it goes all the way back to these things in the very beginning after God created and sin entered and what things looked like. It was gnarly. But there's a couple of things happen. I have it like this. I tried to break today down real simply because I know you're all going to take notes because that's just what we do. And then it'll be great discussion in our life groups this week. There's a couple of things. There's an event And there's a focus on the people involved. So there's an event that happened, and there's people involved. Now, a lot of times, so the event is the judgment of two cities, and the people involved are Abraham, Lot, and his family. So Abraham, Lot, and his family, and the people of the city. We are going to follow the story of Lot today, like we were following the story of Abraham last week. And this will be the last time that we talk about Lot. Because after today, the narrative shifts to Abraham and his seed, and the focus goes that way. After a few verses after this, Lot isn't even really mentioned anymore until you get to the New Testament. And it talks about what we're going to learn about today, that that. Abram's life was aimed at God, and Lot's life was a life of compromise, and we'll look at that. A lot of people, this is where I was going back and forth this week, a lot of people will separate the event and the people. Probably for one, for time's sake, it's a lot to cover, but we're going to. And I'll, and I'll be succinct. No rabbit trails today. Should we pray for that? But a lot of people will cover it. They'll talk about God's judgment. Or we'll talk about and we'll focus on the compromise in Lot's life. But we're going to talk about both. There's a reason we're going to talk about both because they're so intertwined and entangled in the story. It, you ha- it's really hard to separate because I don't think they're meant to be separated. I think it's supposed to be as messy as it is. I think they're supposed to be, as we'll see, 
some tangling. Because you can't even peel Lot away from the city. There's tangling in the evil that goes on in the world. And what God sees and will judge. And then the parts of our heart that draw us towards that stuff. I've seen a lot of blank, blanket statements. You know blanket statements? Those people statements? There's a lot of those. There'll be a lot more coming around this year as the world gets divided up into two groups again, or at least our world in the United States. It'll get divided up in the us and thems. And just by the way, if you find yourself getting divided up in the us and the thems, I hope you get uncomfortable today. Because blanket statements are not helpful. Those people. COVID really like a lot of blanket statements. And when you notice when you put all those people in a group, it doesn't really work. I've come to kind of believe two blanket statements. Here they are. You ready? The first one is this. I believe this is true. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I believe, every, I believe that covers all of humanity. For all have sinned. There is none righteous on their own. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the other blanket statement I, relieve, I, I believe. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I believe those two. On one hand, we're all broken and sinful. On the other hand, that is the state that we're in, that God gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him. Those in between those opposing or seemingly very opposing statements is the reality of every human existence. We all exist, all have existed, and all will exist and live their lives somewhere in between those two things. There's sin in their life that needs the grace of God, and God loves them so much that he gave his son on their behalf that they could be reconciled. This whole narrative and intertangling and all this stuff, it hinges on this one verse I want to point it out to you. It hinges on a question that Abraham poses to God. It's in chapter 18 and verse 25. Because God says to, Ab uh, to Abraham, he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, said this stuff, and then I skipped this whole big chunk, and there's this dialogue that Abraham and God have. The two men start walking away, and then God says this to Abraham in chapter 18, verse 25. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, and here's this question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Why did God judge this city? Why did these men say, we're going to go have a look? 
the cries have come up. We're going to see if the cries of the oppression, the brute, the, just the brutality of this place, we're going to see if they are what we hear from the cries. And Abraham goes, God, are you going to pronounce judgment on this? Far be it from you to do the wrong thing. You know, when it came to the event, there are one, two, three, four. I'm going to point out four things as we go through that are, how did I write it? This question in the outcome of God's judgment presupposes a few things about the event. Here's what it presupposes. Kind of like, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning God created, that verse presupposes that, that you believe that God exists. That's why I said weeks and weeks ago, if you believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe any verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God already existed. So we looked at things that that presupposes about Scripture. God doesn't sit there and try to prove to you that you need to believe him. He just says, I exist. Here's how I create things. God does that a lot of times. He presupposes a few things about judgment. I want to point them out. Number one, he presupposes this. There is evil in the world. Then the Lord said, verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done it is, is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. There is such thing as pure darkness evil. Not like a bad mood or a bad attitude, but like opposite of God, anti all things that are creator, sustainer, Messiah, God, pure darkness, evil. It exists. Evil that its one desire is to steal and kill and destroy. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before today, but there is evil that exists that is absolutely the antithesis of who God is and what he desires that seeks to take for itself all that it can get, whether it be via slavery, sexual abuse, just domination of one human to another with no regard for the other human. There is evil. That's another thing that is presupposed that we need to know about this event is that only God sees it in its entirety. You know, Sodom was an unbelievable, beautiful place. When we think of Sodom, it was rained down with ash and destruction after. So we look at it, and it's like you look to hell itself, and like flames are coming up, and everyone's like, yeah, we love it here. Um, it was beautiful. I don't know if you remember, but when Abram uh, gave Lot, said, you go where you want to go, and then I'll, I'll take the leftovers when we're talking about who Abraham was becoming. It says in chapter 13 that Lot looked all around and he was like, boom, oasis. It was beautiful. It was lush. It was like the garden of the Lord. 
Yet in this beautiful place, there was the darkest underbelly. I grew up in Aspen, Colorado. X Games are going on right now. Anybody watching X Games? Nice. It is the most beautiful place. It had a dark, dark, dark underbelly. You didn't know it because the facade was beautiful. Gucci store, private jets, all the stuff. The amount of brokenness in the wake of destruction that came through that place is gnarly. Bellingham is beautiful. There is a dark underbelly. Because we're in the world and evil exists. It exists everywhere. And just because you live in a beautiful place doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But only God sees it in its entirety. The back and forth between Abraham and God is what that's about. Abraham's like, well, what are you go you're going to judge the city? Well, what if there's 50 righteous people in there who, have not, who aren't in this? God's like, well, then I'll know. I'll see. And then Abraham's like, well, what about if there's 40? Would you spare the whole city for 40? Yeah, I'll spare the whole city for 40. What about 30? What about 20? What about 15? It's like, it's like Craigslist. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, sorry, Facebook Marketplace now, Craigslist, so old school. I'll give you 15 for it. There you go. Which we'll get at the end, and we'll see where Abraham's heart was in that. But what is going on is God is saying, I know what's going on. I see it in its entirety. We need to know that when it comes to things around God making judgment calls on someone's condition. We may think we know what we see, but you don't know what you see, not even in your own heart apart from Jesus. The amount of people in the city could have been spared. So what about these people indicates righteousness versus wickedness? We, we, we see this. This is why people will just teach on the judgment. And we're like, okay, wicked people, God's going to judge you. Good people, God's going to pull you out of the city. Well, how do you know? If only God sees. That's the point. That's why verses like 1 Samuel 16, 7 are so important for the good and also for the opposite side of the coin when God says to Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height meaning like his stature, how buff he is and beautiful and stuff. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him when he was talking about a king. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is the judging a book by its cover thing. Hebrews 4.13 says this when speaking about God's word, which the word of God is one of Jesus' names, so he is the outward expression of who God is, and this is what he says about himself. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. As a matter of fact, everything is uncovered and laid bare like naked before the eyes of him who must we, whom we must give account. God sees in its entirety. 
God alone sees it. The third thing about judgment is that here it is. God will judge evil. Verse 13, back in Genesis chapter 19, this is what those men said. Because we are going to destroy this place. Why? Because of the evil, the outcry against the Lord and its people is so great, he has sent it sent us to destroy it. The predominant theme of this event is God's justice. See, we love justice. We want those that hurt someone else. We want justice. We just don't want justice when the judgment's been pronounced against us. Let's be real. We want mercy at that point. God, please don't. Or... We take the whole thing and we flip it on its head and we say, and we get uh, snooty about it. And we say, don't judge me. And we pronounce a judgment on someone else for them judging us. And here we go, round and round and round and round and round we go in this crazy world that we live in where you can't, where it's like no matter what you do, It's a hard thing. The predominant theme of this narrative is justice. There is an evil that God will not tolerate, and there is an evil that he will do away with. There was something that entered into the heart of man and woman in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve turned away from God and they decided for themselves what is good and evil. There is something that entered into the heart of mankind and it spread to the heart of all mankind. It was this brokenness. Uh, there was a brokenness of this, this unspoken, perfect harmony around gender and sexuality. In the garden, it was perfect. Everyone knew who they were. They knew their purpose under God. They, they weren't they weren't seeking for purpose outside of or identity outside of anything else. There was a harmony. We didn't have to explain it. It was just there. And then sin entered and it was broken. There was a perfect harmony in the garden around rule, rule of life, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, authority, what it looked like to submit to one another. It wasn't like, okay, you do this, I'll do that. Well, it, it says in the Bible this and that, and you're supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do that, and that's not submitting to one another. You didn't have to deal with it, and Paul didn't have to write all these letters. It just was unspoken, and it was beautiful, and there was a harmony. The way authority was exercised, there was no abuse of power. It was just perfect. And then this evil entered the heart of mankind that we know what's better for ourselves. And then we see, our, then we see mankind in a place that has gotten so bad that God says, no more. And it's a rough thing to read and it's uncomfortable. Sodom was so out of order and so destructive, he removed it. But he said that only after a fair trial. The last thing I want to say about the event before we look at Lot is this. God doesn't delight in anyone's death. I think the church needs to be reminded of that. 
God's not standing back. And those of you that know me know that I'm passionate. But he's not standing back and just like, watch this. I'm fitting to whoop this whole town's ass. (laughs) It's like, that's not his deal. So much so that he doesn't delight in the death of anyone. He sent his son to do it for us. That's why there's verses in the Bible that are so hard to almost comprehend where it says that it actually pleased God to bruise his son on our behalf. God doesn't look and being like, ah, I am going to get that city. Can't stand those people. He does not delight in the death even of the wicked, wicked, but desires that all would come to repentance. That's like God's whole program. The same God that pronounces judgment on sin is the one who sent his only son in the world to pay for that sin. That's the event. Now I want to look at Lot and why they're so intertwined. Because the past few weeks we've been talking about Abraham, who he's becoming. We said this, the actions of our lives show the belief of our lives. The aim of our lives shows where we're going, right? What we do is, is because of what we believe. There was a steady progression of Abraham's life, Abraham's life one of faith. The in-between time, we talked about last week as a recap, he was looking up, he was, he was set apart, he was looking up, and he was looking forward. You can go back and listen to last week's teaching. There was also a steady progression in Lot's life, one of compromise and crisis. You could say Abraham's life was aimed at God. Lot's life was aimed at the world. This is what we want to talk about Lot's life. It was his life progressed towards compromise. There was a steady up and to the right progression. It was trending in a direction up and to the right. What's opposite of that? Down and to the left. Yeah, Lot was a down and to the left. He went from looking toward Sodom, Genesis 13, 10, to pitching his tent toward Sodom, living toward that way, to living in Sodom, to, we see here, sitting in the gate of Sodom, indicating that he wasn't just living there, he was actually on the city council. Not just sitting in and being on the city council, he go, then he then loses everything when Sodom is attacked. And then we'll see he lived after this with a longing for Sodom. A few things about the path of compromise. If you're not uncomfortable yet, get ready. <laughs> a few things we see about the path of compromise. First thing is this. Compromise causes God to simply become a distraction. Look at verse 19, the two angels, or chapter 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, I want you to picture this. 
I don't know what he's doing. He was spared, so there was something in him that was righteous. We'll get to that point, but he's there. Don't know what he's doing, but listen to when Abraham saw these people, what did he do? It says he fell down before them and worshiped. He went and he was like, babe, grab a cow and slaughter it. That's so romantic. That's how you did it back then. And they, they, they give their very best, and they, they tried to get the, the men to stay with them and eat and prolong their stay. Now, with that, this compare and contrast, here's what Lot did. When he saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed his face to the ground and was like, my lords, what are you doing here? He said, please turn aside to your servant's house. He's like, you guys shouldn't be here. This is like a bad place. Come to my house. And then this is what he says. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go and then go on your way early in the morning. Like, I'll, I'll take you for a minute, but like, you shouldn't be here and you should get out of here. Not a good start. When, 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 if God shows up and it's just a distraction to what we're doing, ding, ding, ding. This is a life leading to compromise. The second thing, compromise caused Lot to trade one evil for another. The most gnarliest part of this whole text for me is the part where it says, okay, yes, I'm going to read it again. Before they had gone to bed, starting in verse 4, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, so this is God saying, I'm going to go and see the heart of men. This is saying the entirety of the heart of the men and mankind in this city was, was the type of evil that we talked about before. And they came to the door. And this is the place where Lot and his family lived. Lot, we're the men who came to you tonight. Bring us out to them so we may have our way with them. The word here is talked about sex, but it, it's this heart set of rape and domineering and, and being overcome with desire. Lot went outside and, they, and he said, no, my friends, don't do this. We could, trying to like settle it. Hey, bros. What's up, homies? Don't do this thing. Look, I have, then he says this, look, I have two daughters here that have never been with anyone. Take them and do with you, please, but don't do what you're talking about to these men. When God shows up to something in our lives that's, that's crazy, when we go down the path of compromise so much, it causes us to put others in harm's way to get ourselves out of situations that we got ourselves into. Even the people that we love the most. Let me tell you, uh, Lot wasn't like, hey, I got a great idea. We're going to move to Sodom. Our life is going to skid. Just on the inside. On the outside, we might look like everything's good. But on the inside, we are going to skid to the point of craziness to where I'm going to offer up my daughters in this to like make God be like, oh, well done. Or something. I don't know. There, it makes us just craziness. And it's like a life of compromise. I read this thing 
by Dallas Willard, amazing author, one of the foremost um, theologians in, in, of, of thought on um, what is called, um, come on, brain, like, like a spiritual renewal. It's like discipleship, but like walking with God, becoming like God. Um, some of you guys listen to like Comer and, and stuff like that. It's, it's the same school of thought, but this is what he says. The best thing that you can offer God is who you're becoming. And I'm just like, man, that's so crazy. I was thinking about it this week. You know who we offer our children? Who we're becoming. And we'll see that this stuff stuck with his kids. As a matter of fact, it was somehow, it was so ingrained in them when they escaped the city and their mom dies. Read on in the story. They find themselves alone and in a cave with no heirs in the place that they had been destroyed. And they're like, our family name and our seed is going to be done with. So what happens? The daughters conspire together to get their dad drunk, sleep with him so they can get pregnant by him so their family can continue. The compromise in our life will be passed on. Not to scare us, but to just like be reminded. That's why brokenness gets worse. There's actually a law of downward spiralness. When you give someone a compliment or give them a hug, or there's math involved. All you math people are like, yes, I knew it. When you give someone a hug or something, just imagine there's a plus one that's added. You give them a plus one, high five, good to see you. When you tell someone that they're a joke or you hurt them, it's a, neg it's, it's, a, it's a multiplication, that's a word, multiplication of negativity by five. Hey, good to see you, high five, plus one. You're an idiot, times five in the negative. It, that's why when you're like, that escalated quickly. You know, that guy cut me off. Next thing I knew, we were throwing blows in the middle of the highway. That escalated quickly. That's because the multiplication is so much higher. It's the same way with trauma, with abuse. Okay, moving on. The third thing about compromise. Compromise costs a lot to lose his witness and his influence. He was a hypocrite to this city. Did you catch the part where he's like, you guys don't do this? And they were like, bro, you're going to judge us? They're like, you came here as a foreigner and now you act like you're one of us? And then they said, we will treat you worse than we're going to treat them. That's what the men of the city said. He was a hypocrite to the city. He had no witness. His words were nothing. His words had become a joke to his family. Did you catch it where it says, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He's like, hurry up, you guys. We got to get out of this place because the Lord is going to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was a joke. Thought he was joking. Like, bro, you can't even be serious. That was the way his life had led. He had lost his witness and his influence. Why? Why all of this stuff? Why the judgment? Why the, the compromise in Lot's life? Why? Desire. Compromise comes from, from letting desire drive. When you let desire take the 
get behind the wheel and drive every decision of your life, your desires. He knew the road he was on. He knew the condition of the culture of the city, yet he stayed. He knew it was affecting him and his family, yet they stayed. It grabbed his heart, and it grabbed his wife's heart. They didn't want to leave or change. They had to be drug away. Let me just tell you something. Desire is a, is a bad driver. It's a bad driver. It says so much so that as they left, when they hesitated, the men grabbed them. They're pulling them out of the city, and they're going. And then it's like a half a sentence, and Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. That's one of those Bible things you're like, well, that's weird. I'm supposed to understand it. I'll just keep reading. <laughs> There's something that's like Bible, yeah, <laughs> hallelujah, or I don't know what I'm supposed to. That's odd, and we just keep reading. She looked back, and she suffered the judgment of the city because she may have been told certain things in her life. She may even have had a certain pattern or, or, or something of growth, but she looked back. Even that with what was going on in, with her daughter, something in the city, it's what, it had grabbed her heart so much, it's what she wanted. You want to know why people die in addiction, even though in their inner part they want to be freed from it? Because it freaking grabs you and it takes you all the way down. Why people, any, any, anything. It's so, this is blanket statement. Ready? Oh yeah, that person's addiction. Man, please. We all have desires that are pulling and driving and trying to get us to fill that spot that God can only fill in our lives when there's that harmony, that Garden of Eden, that, that place of, of balance. For you and for me, sin is crouching at the door. It's like God said to Cain right before he then decided to murder his brother. He says, sin is crouching at the door, man. And its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. So here's my conclusion. You guys are doing good. Are you with me? I want to end our time this morning by making three statements to three groups of people. I believe we're all here. First of, us, first of all, before I make these statements, I'm going to level the playing field. We all have sexual brokenness as a part of our stories. Because when I prepare these messages, like, you know why people don't go to church? Because they have stuff going on that's real in their lives and they're conflicted about it. And it feels good because it's desires involved and all of this stuff. And they're like, I'm not going to go there because I know all I'm, all I'm going to experience in that place is judgment. That's what people think, so they don't go. I prepare all of these messages and labor over them and be like, oh my gosh, Lord, and all of this stuff. Because I believe that no matter where someone is, their sexual brokenness is part of their story, part of their heritage, whether it's generational or to them personally. And God wants to meet them and has a word for them. And wants to draw them to himself. And not just make them like the person next to them, but make them like Jesus. You know there's a difference. He's not trying to make the person next to you like you. He's trying to make the person next to you like him. And that's, good, that's the same for you. 
We all have sexual brokenness as a part of our stories. Before we make blanket statements on the sexual orientations of people in the city or what was going on, I'm just going to tell you sexual brokenness is very prevalent and it's the strongest desire around. It's a strong force and we all feel its pull. The second thing to make the playing ground, playing ground, playing field level. Not just that we're all broken, but this. Jesus received the judgment that all humankind deserves, including yours, including mine. So with that being said, I want to talk to those of us who see Abraham last week and this week and we're like, dude, that's me. My life is aimed towards God. I'm, 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 set, I'm wanting to be set apart. I'm looking up. I'm looking forward. I'm living this life of faith out the windshield of my life going, God, where are you leading? This is why I want to ask you. What is your heart attitude towards the brokenness of this world? Do you look out and you're like, this freaking world, man. Get us out of here, God. Or are you like, if that is you, is your heart like Abraham where it says he was pleading for the city? This is zero guilt in what I'm about to say right here, but I know by and large what people's heart is towards the brokenness of the world, judging by how many people show up to prayer meetings. Because when we're praying and we're like, God, help us. Deal with us. Help us to be a light in the city. There's more just being like, dude, I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. Or I'm not going over there. Or I'm not doing that. What is your heart? Do you stand back and judge or do you plead to the Lord on the world's behalf? Those of us that are hearing about Lot and you're like, dang, that's me. You're in this. There's been compromise. And it sort of feels good and it maybe gets you some, some stuff you want. You're living in the place you want. You got the, the stuff that you feel like you want. But there's still... That, to me, that's the vast majority of our city. We live in this place, dude. It's crazy. I, I can't, th I, I, it's so amazing. Unless you grew up here. Then it's like everywhere else you grew up. You're like, I got to get out of here for a minute. <laughs> but everyone comes back because this is just amazing. But it's sort of like one of those things where it's like everything is awesome, but inside there's so much emptiness. Is the path you're on leading you further and further and further away from God? Is your life marked by compromise? Are people surprised or think you're joking when you talk about your faith? I used to have friends, they'd get super drunk and they'd be like, dude, and, so, and be like, yeah, it's part of my deal. Like I, I get a few beers in me and I'm feeling good and I like share my faith. It's like I'm really bold. I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, and people are just like, you must be a bummer to drink with. <laughs> that guy gets drunk and tells me how, like, I'm going to go to hell or something. Do people think you're joking? Like, seriously? The way you live and what you say, those don't seem to match up. Are you ruled by desire? Does desire have more of your heart than God does? And then finally, those of us 
who identify with people in the city. What do you want the outcome of your life to be? Have you ever think about that? Like, what do you want? Do you ever think through the long-term consequences of your life? If God created everything, including you, if he is perfect, if he is loving, if he is real, if he is holy, and if he is asking you to come be with him, would you do it? I'm of the firm belief that if people just knew who Jesus was, they would walk with him. Jesus was of this belief where he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Like if they knew what they're doing, they wouldn't do it. For all three, Abrahams, Lot's, people of the world, it's looking to, it's looking what saves us all is looking to Jesus who already paid the price for the worst of our choices. That's the gospel. That's what we declare as like good news. That's the message that Jesus was like, go out and tell people. Don't, be, don't give us and them statements. Go out and tell people what God has done in your life. That, that requires some vulnerability, some honesty. Jesus experienced the fullness of God's death sentence on darkness. What the people, what, Zodom and Gomorrah went through? Jesus went through. He experienced God's judgment on evil that he saw in all people except for Jesus. That's why he was the only suitable sacrifice and the only one who would pass through it victoriously. Amen. That's why he did it. He endured the cross. That's ju God's judgment on our behalf. And he rose victoriously. He made a way. That's why he says, I'm the way to walk in him and have life through him. He's the bridge that we cross by faith into the life we have in Jesus. That's why we're Jesus people. That's why people are like, are you a Christian? And I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what you mean by that because you might have some stuff, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jesus. That's why we're Jesus people. That's why the, the, God, the Romans 1.16 says, for I'm not ashamed of being a Jesus person. Because it is, for Jesus gives us our way unto salvation to all people who believe. That's why we submit our lives under his authority and we don't want to let desire drive. And we're like, God, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. And we, and we lay down our desires for what he has because there's a belief that our desires, they're also being fueled by darkness. They want to pull us away, and God wants to give us fullness. If someone believes me, please say amen. amen. That's why we do stuff like the Bible says where it says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That means every day there's a part of you that has to die. It's a weird thing, but there's part of us that just be like, no, you don't drive today. So who does drive? Jesus drives. We connect to him. In his word, through his word, Sundays are so important. Sundays is where some people just live. They're like, yeah, I go to church on Sunday. You know what? I'm stoked for you. I'm glad you're here. I hope that you connect with Jesus today, and I hope that you think about this stuff in your Tuesday faith. Amen. That's why we make a big deal about grace around here. Because God does. Doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. God has drawn you to himself. And that's why we 
share the hope and new life we have in Jesus. That's why at the bridge, our mission, we exist to connect people to Jesus. We exist to connect people to Jesus and discover his plan and his purposes for your life. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing this last song. I know we went long. Sorry, but I'm really proud of myself. (laughs) I was like, I want you to be done by 11.15, and it's 11.20. That's pretty good. I'm so humble. Okay, let's, um, <laughs> let's pray. Lord, we, we end our service this morning, um, this hour, hour and a half that we spend on Sunday together. We're going to end it. And um, 